morning. Doing all right? I've seen a few college football shirts in the house this morning. Are all of us doing okay? I feel like we need to have a a moment of silence for a few of you at least, right? Like Zach, who was up on the platform earlier, he's a big Tennessee fan. Yeah, God bless all you Tennessee people, all right? We'll we'll leave that alone. Just go ahead and get started. Uh, Before we dive into the message, I need to just touch quickly on two things related to our new building and the upcoming move, all right? Uh, first, don't forget that this entire month, we have FF and E items for sale. These are fixtures, furnishings, and equipment, okay? Things like chairs for the auditorium, furniture for the lobby, tables, cribs, gliders for kids' ministry, etc. So if you haven't gotten to see those just yet, we have our display board set up again out in front of the building. Uh, would love for you to stop by and take a look before you leave. And the ask is really, really simple. If Crosspoint City Church is your church, would you buy something or buy some things? And even if you can't buy an entire item, we'd love to invite you to make a partial donation to one, even if it's like five or ten bucks, okay? Uh, If we will all do that, together we can help to offset some major, major costs associated with the move. So that's first. Second, in the next few weeks, we have three dates scheduled for building tours, And so if you're interested in going and walking through the building with me and some of our other staff, I would love to have you do that. Space is very, very limited, which means you need to sign up. And so if you want to do that, if you want to see the dates and and sign up for a spot, you can do it in one of two ways. Uh, Either break out your trusty Crosspoint app on your phone or your device, or you can go to our Facebook page and we've posted a registration link. If you'll just click on that, it'll take you to an online form. You can fill it out and knock it out that way, all right? If you have any questions about any of that stuff, just catch us before you go. We'll have folks out front and in the lobby at the Connection Desk, and we'd love to answer any questions you may have, all right? All right. Well, hey, if you have a Bible or some type of device with an app, grab them, and let's go to Mark chapter 9 together. Mark chapter 9. If you're new to Crosspoint, like maybe this is your first time or it's your first time back in a really long time, this entire year we've been in a series on the book of Mark. And just a few weeks ago, we entered into what's known as the discipleship section of the book. This is the section where Jesus himself outlines in great detail what it means to truly follow after him. And to get us on the same page as we get started, I just want to show you again what we've learned so far, okay? Uh, According to Jesus, disciples or followers, they first deny themselves, Meaning they lose sight of themselves completely and reorient their entire life around Jesus and his way of life. Uh, Number two, disciples take up their crosses. Meaning they walk in obedience to Jesus no matter what it costs them, even if the cost is life itself. Number three, they keep following. They keep following Jesus' teachings and his ways, trusting that neither he nor his word ever changes, even when the rest of the world is changing. Uh, Number four, disciples depend entirely upon Jesus. And they do this knowing, number one, that they can never overcome their weaknesses or struggles on their own. And number two, that when they're weak and dependent upon Jesus, that's when he's strong on their behalf. Uh, Number five, disciples choose to be last. So they consider themselves lower in order and rank than every other person in their life, and they always strive to meet the needs of other people before meeting their own. And then finally, number six, they become servants to all. 
So these people, these followers, these disciples make it the sole purpose of their lives to serve other people regardless of how lowly or insignificant those people might be. Now, if you're left looking at this list and thinking to yourself, uh, wow, James, that's a lot, man. I forgot about some of that. Wasn't here for some of that. And to be honest with you, a lot of that seems really, really hard. Listen, if that's you, I don't want to discourage you in this moment. But at the same time, I need you to know that Jesus is just getting warmed up here. Okay, in the 13 verses we're going to look at today, Jesus adds three more items onto this list. And the way Mark goes about capturing those items is somewhat unique. Do you guys know what a catchword or a catchphrase is? Yes, 1130, are you out there? Okay, you know what a catchword or a catchphrase is? Yes, okay. Uh, If you don't, it's simply a popular expression or saying that's easily recognized because of its repeated use. And oftentimes when you and I hear certain catchwords and phrases, we also think of the people known for saying them. And I'll give you some examples, okay? Uh, If I say the phrase, I see dead people, all you movie fans in the room immediately think of what or who? Yeah, Sixth Sense, that little kid, Haley Joel Osment, who played whatever his name was in Sixth Sense. He was awesome, but that's where your mind goes, right? Uh, I'll give you one if you're a sports fan. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Muhammad Ali, of course, one of the greatest boxers of all time. Uh, One more, and this is for you if you're a sports or movie fan. If you're a true Southerner, you should get this. You ready? If you ain't first, you're last. Okay, yeah, okay, that's the famous, of course, the famous Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights. I'm sure if we thought about it long enough, we could all come up with examples of our own, but I share those few examples to say this. In a very similar way, Jesus used certain catchwords and phrases when defining and describing discipleship, meaning there were certain sayings that he repeated over and over and over again to different groups of people. And and those sayings were regularly associated with him. Now, what Mark does in our passage is he actually compiles a few of those catchwords and phrases. And what's interesting is that he does it in somewhat of a disjointed fashion. I mean, you'll see this in a moment, but our passage doesn't flow particularly well today. But I think that's okay. I don't think it needs to. Because again, when you consider his purpose in the book, it really makes it irrelevant, right? What's his purpose in this part of the book? to teach us what Jesus taught concerning discipleship. And so with that said and with that in mind, we're going to dive in and get to work. Mark chapter 9, we're going to pick up and start reading in verse 38. And if you don't have a Bible with you, this will be on the screens. You can follow along there. Here's what it says. John said to him, so he's speaking to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So what we find in these few verses is the disciple of John for the first time and the only time in the book of Mark speaking up. And he speaks up on behalf of all the disciples. And he says to Jesus, teacher, uh, just wanted to let you know, recently we caught this guy casting demons out of people in your name. And so we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Now, I don't know if John was bragging there. 
Like, Jesus, look at what we did for you. Aren't you so proud? Or if he was simply informing Jesus of the situation at hand. But either way, I would argue that his words reveal what I would call a mindset of prideful exclusivity. Prideful exclusivity. And I'll explain what I mean, okay? If you've been here over the course of this series... You might remember that when we were back in Mark chapter 6, several weeks ago, Jesus gave his disciples authority to cast demons out of people. Do you remember this if you were here? Well, from the looks of it, along the way, these men started believing that the authority they were given was exclusive to them. Meaning in their minds, it was their right and their right alone to cast demons out of people in the name of Jesus. And since this outside exorcist wasn't one of them, in pride and frustration, they took it upon themselves to stop him, therefore excluding him from the very work of God. Now, as shocking as that might seem to some of us, look, it's a great reminder that there is a direct correlation between pride and stupidity. Are you with me? Yes, some of you in the room who've struggled with pride over the course of your life like I have. And I'm just having a moment of honest confession here. My parents are here today. They can tell you that that's very true of their son. Listen, those of you who've struggled with it, you know like I know that pride can make you do some really dumb things, right? Things like getting in the way of what God wants to do in the lives of people. Uh, Things like preventing you from celebrating and affirming what God is doing through the lives of certain people. I mean, that's what pride did for the disciples, right? Right? When you think about it, what should have happened in our story? What should have happened is this. John comes to Jesus in humility and he says, hey, I wanted to let you know. There's this guy out there. He's not with us. He hasn't been following us, but he's casting demons out of people in your name. And when we came across him just recently, we stopped and we encouraged him. We told him how awesome he was doing. We even wrote handwritten letters and put them in the mail to affirm him in his ministry. Jesus, you would have loved this guy. He was doing so much to help broken, suffering people. But that's not what happened, is it? No, instead, just think about this. These brothers come across this guy successfully casting evil spirits out of possessed people. And they actually have the audacity to say to him, hey, Cut it out. Leave the demons alone and stop delivering these poor people they're tormenting. You have no right to do that. Only we get to do that kind of stuff. How ridiculous is that? It's beyond ridiculous, isn't it? But this is what pride does. It makes you do ridiculous things all while believing they're the right things. The disciples thought the right thing to do in this scenario was to let suffering people suffer rather than include an outsider in work they believed was exclusively theirs. Now, what I love about Jesus is that upon hearing this, he absolutely shuts them down. He basically says to his guys, "Uh, what do you mean you stopped him? Have you lost your minds? Don't stop him And then he goes on to make this point. People like him that are doing mighty works in my name, they're not going to turn around and speak evil of me afterwards. He even takes it a step further in verse 41, and he speaks no longer of mighty works like exorcism, but of simple works of hospitality like giving people cups of water because they belong to him. And his point in doing so is really simple. He's teaching his disciples here, people who do my work, 
regardless of the nature of the work, regardless of their status, people who do my work will be rewarded by me, not excluded by me. Therefore, you as my people should include them. Are you tracking so far, 1130? Is this making sense? Yes? Okay, I need you to know that all that, all that we just talked about, Jesus captures in the first catchphrase he uses in our passage. And the first catchphrase, if you want to underline it, is found in verse 40. Jesus says, for the one who's not against us is what? Is for us. Here's his point. Uh, Hey, guys, that guy you stopped is clearly for me and for us. And the proof of that is seen in his desire to bring honor and glory to my name. And so in the future, please do not stop people like him because people who aren't against us, like that guy, are for us if those other things are true of them, even though they're not necessarily with us. Now, the practical implication of that first catchphrase is this, as it relates to discipleship. Jesus is teaching us here that disciples are for those for Jesus. That disciples are for those for Jesus. So if a person or a group of people is for Jesus, they're loving him, they're following him, striving to bring honor and glory to his name, Jesus is just saying to us here, if you're my follower, you should be for those people, even if they're not necessarily with you. And I want to use a very specific example today to make sense of what I mean, because I believe it gets at the heart of this discipleship lesson. Uh, you guys know that Cross Point is not the only church in Cartersville, Bartow County, or even Northwest Atlanta, right? You are aware of this. Okay, just wanted to make sure. Uh, what that means is really simple. It means that there are other followers of Jesus outside our walls who are for him, but they're not with us. They're with First Baptist. They're with Tabernacle, they're with The Well, they're with Life Point, they're with Church at Liberty Square, and the list goes on and on and on. Please hear me. We have to be for them even though they're not with us. And I don't just mean for them individually, I also mean for them collectively as churches. I want to be really clear on this today because I need you to know where I stand as your pastor and where we stand as a church. So let me just be as clear as I can. Cross Point City Church is for every other church in this community that teaches the Bible as the authoritative word of God and preaches the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Amen? And look, we are for those churches in spite of what makes us different. And I will acknowledge there are certain things that make us different. Things like denomination, the way we dress when we come here on Sundays, things like the music we play, even certain secondary theological issues. And I just want to highlight that word again, secondary theological issues. These are things we can disagree on without going to war over, right? These would be things like gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, women in leadership in the church, God's sovereignty in salvation. Even though we might disagree on some of those things with brothers and sisters in Christ outside our walls, we still must be for them. Because those people and those churches, listen, they are allies, not enemies in the kingdom of God. I hope you get this. I hope you understand that Crosspoint is not here to compete with other churches. We are here to cooperate with other churches in hopes of pushing back darkness in our city. And so because that's the case, here's what it means. It means you and I cannot afford to speak poorly of other churches. 
And it also means that we must celebrate and affirm them along with all the kingdom work they're accomplishing. Why? Because that's what disciples do. Disciples are for those for Jesus. The second catchphrase Jesus uses is in the next set of verses. Uh, Pick back up. We're going to keep reading in verse 42. These verses are somewhat shocking, so just hang in and we'll unpack them in a moment. All right, here's what he says. Jesus goes on, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Lots to talk about, so let's talk, all right? Uh, In these verses, Jesus basically paints two scenarios. And he illustrates scenario one using a child, possibly the same child that we saw him using in our passage from last week. Uh, If you were here for that message, you might remember that this child Jesus is holding represents not only children, that's part of it, but in a general sense, he also represents lowly, insignificant people, which in our text today could also represent new or immature followers of Jesus Christ. And so get the picture in your mind, if you will. Here's Jesus holding this kid, and he uses catchphrase number two, cause to sin, or it can also be translated cause to stumble. He says, anyone that causes one of these little ones or the people they represent to sin or to stumble meaning that you do something or say something that would cause a person to fall into unbelief, either through uh, deliberate sin or some type of uh, disbelief, Jesus says, if you do that, it would be better for you at that point to have a giant millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the sea. He then, in scenario number two, gets way more personal. All right, scenario one is about other people. Uh, Scenario two is about self. He says, and this is somewhat shocking, If your hand, your foot, or your eye causes you to sin. So there's catchphrase number two again. Jesus said, you should cut off or tear out those body parts. Because according to him, it'd be better for you to enter eternal life crippled, lame, and blind than to give in to sinful appetites and desires while you're here. Now, in order to really dig into the deep implications of those scenarios, let me show you what Jesus is revealing about discipleship with that catchphrase. Here it is. He's teaching us that his disciples kill sin before it ever kills them. That his disciples kill sin long before it kills them. I mean, think about it like this. If someone was out to kill you and you knew it, what would you do to prevent that? The answer is anything, right? No matter how extreme that thing might be. Well, Jesus is communicating a similar idea and a similar point here as it relates to sin. Just so you know, and I know some of you are probably asking this, so I'll go ahead and answer it. No, Jesus is not being literal here. So for those of you asking, should I go home and really like cut off stuff and like tear my eyes out? (laughs) Jesus is not being literal. So don't go home and maim yourself and then blame Jesus, okay? What he's doing by using these very extreme examples 
is he's confronting us with the weight and gravity of just how dangerous and destructive sin truly is. Right? He's helping us to see here, don't miss this, that sin is after us and it is trying to kill us in a variety of ways, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, financially, even physically. At times, sin even wants to use you to kill other people in those same ways. In addition, in addition, Jesus says that sin is so destructive and so uh, powerful that when not dealt with through repentance and faith in him, it actually has the ability to send us straight to hell. Now, I know for some of us that might be shocking to hear, depending on who you are in the room today, uh, because I'm fully aware there are people out there that teach and believe that hell's not a real place, uh, that a loving God would never send people to a place like that. Um, that all the, the language used in the Bible around hell is completely figurative, not literal. Listen, I just need you to understand today, and I say this because I love you and I care about you. According to Jesus, all those people are wrong. Jesus believed in hell. Uh, in fact, he talked about it quite a bit while he was here. He, he talked about it, don't miss this, more than any other person in the Bible. And when he talked about it, he often did so using this Greek word, Gehenna. Uh, this word is translated from a Hebrew fa- uh, phrase meaning Valley of Hinnom. This valley, it was an actual place on the south side of Jerusalem. And in this valley, child sacrifice was once practiced to a pagan god named Molech. That is, until a king in Israel named Josiah put a stop to it. After stopping it, he then turned this valley into the city dump. It's where household garbage was taken, along with human waste and excrement, along with dead animal carcasses, you name it, it was there, right? And so you can just visualize it. Here is this awful, disgusting place where worms now are feasting upon all this waste and refuse, and fires burned constantly to consume it. That's the imagery Jesus is using here. And he's using that imagery to say to us, that's what hell is like. It is a place of eternal judgment, of eternal torment. And look at me. According to him, sin's goal is to take you there forever. Now, the practical implication of all that, it simply means this. Because sin is out to destroy us and kill us in those ways, as followers of Jesus, we must be proactive and we must take extreme measures in putting sin to death. And when you think about it, isn't that what Jesus did on our behalf a couple thousand years ago? Like, I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to think of anything more extreme or drastic than the God of the universe humbling himself, wrapping himself in flesh, living among us, giving his life on a cross, resurrecting from the dead, and then ascending back to heaven, all to conquer sin, death, and hell on our behalf forever. And so in a way, here's all Jesus is doing. He's simply inviting us to follow him in taking extreme measures against killing sin. The question becomes, how in the world do we do that? Like, how do people like us today kill sin before it kills us? Well, I want to give you three simple answers to that question, all right? And if you're taking notes, you might want to scribble some of this down. But number one, if you're someone in the room who showed up today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus... That's where you have to start. Listen, according to Jesus, not according to James, according to him, Jesus is the only one who can save you from hell. According to Jesus, Jesus is the only one who can deliver you from the power, presence, and penalty of sin. 
And so until you trust in him as God's Savior, Lord, and King, you live in constant danger of sin killing you both in this life and in the next. So that's first. You have to trust in Jesus. After trusting in Jesus, number two, you then set your heart on him continually each day. And you set your heart on him by remembering him and remembering all that he's done for you to conquer sin, death, and hell on your behalf. And here's what's amazing. As you remember and celebrate Jesus by spending time in the word, spending time in prayer, worshiping him, uh, walking with other believers in Christ, here's what happens. The Holy Spirit of God that lives in you starts to make Jesus more and more beautiful to you. And at the same time, he makes the sin in your life more and more appalling until eventually you're left looking at Jesus and looking at your sin and the thought of choosing it over him disgusts you. Like you just can't help but think to yourself, why would I choose this awful, disgusting thing that's trying to kill me over the very one who laid his life down to kill it so that I could be set free? And so it starts with trust and faith in Jesus Number two, you set your heart on Jesus each and every day. And then number three, on a behavioral level, you start to cut off certain sources of sin in your life. And before you start to argue with me that I'm preaching legalism here, uh, let me just say, that ain't legalism, that's wisdom. I mean, imagine you went home this afternoon and you found a massive rattlesnake in your backyard. What would you do with that thing? Would you like pick it up and pet it and hug it and then hand it to your kids? Guys, come check this out. This is an awesome rattlesnake. Now, what would you do? You would cut its head off. And why? Because you understand that thing has the ability to kill you. Would you look up here for a moment? That's what we do with sin. We don't mess around with it. We don't play games with it. We don't see how close we can get to it before it takes us out. And we surely don't pass it along to other people. When it comes to sin, we cut its head off long before it has the chance to threaten us. And so, for example, let me try to make it practical. Um, For those of you in the room, men and women, who may have a history of struggling with pornography, and I include women in that group because this is no longer just a man's issue. Uh, Men and women are both affected by this today. But if you have a history of this, killing that sin in your life before it kills you, it may mean that you need to cancel certain movie channels you subscribe to. It may mean that you need to like ditch the iPhone and go old school back to your like Motorola Razor again, right? Just go old school on everybody, don't apologize. Uh, It may mean that you move your home computer out of your private office and put it in the middle of your living room. Uh, Maybe you're someone in the room who's awful with money. You keep buying stuff you don't need because in a way that's where you find your sense of joy and self-worth. And as a result, you're broke, you're in massive amounts of debt, you cannot be generous, you're stressed out all the time. Well, it may mean that you need to cut up all your credit cards, stop visiting those stores you often frequent. You probably need to start giving before you spend so that you don't have that money you usually spend to spend any longer. And you might want to hire a financial planner to help you put together a strategy to get out of the hole you're in. Or what about this? Maybe you're somebody who walked in the room today suffering with some type of addiction. And maybe it's public, maybe it's private, but you've been that person up until this point who has said, like many people do, no, it's fine, it's not a big deal, I've got control over it, I can stop anytime I want. But in reality, you know that you're lying through your teeth. That thing has its claws in you, and it is wrecking and destroying your life. Listen, it's probably time to finally confess that to a friend, to a spouse, to a counselor, 
so that you can get the help you need and cut off the source of that sin in your life. Look, I know what some of you are probably thinking right now. You hear all that and you're probably thinking, wow, James, that seems overboard, bro. Seems drastic. That seems extreme. I I know it does. That's the point. Jesus is teaching us here that as his followers, we do whatever it takes to kill sin long before it kills us. That's number two. The, The final lesson that Jesus teaches us on discipleship is found in the last two verses of chapter nine. He uses two final catch words to teach this lesson. And so I want us to read these verses together and we'll just talk through them. Here we go. Verse 49, he says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So the two catch words Jesus uses here are fire and salt. And in using these words, he brings up certain Old Testament imagery concerning sacrifices. In Leviticus 2, chapter 13, God instructed his people, the nation of Israel, to actually salt their sacrifices when bringing them to him. And that salt was meant to symbolize both purity and preservation. And so you can just picture it, right? Uh, If you're someone who belongs to the nation of Israel, you come to the temple with your sacrifice and you lay your grain or your meat on the altar and you offer salt along with it and then it is set on fire. The question becomes, what in the world does that have to do with discipleship? Well, here's the answer. Jesus is teaching through these two words that disciples both persevere and preserve. Disciples, just write it down. I know it doesn't make a lot of sense at this point, but write it down and we'll unpack it. Disciples persevere and preserve. Now, what we're going to do to make sense of this is just talk about fire and salt in two distinct categories. And and along the way, I think it'll make sense. All right, we'll start with fire first. I want you to look back if your Bibles are open to verse 49. This, by far, is probably one of the hardest, if not the hardest, uh, scriptures to interpret in the entire book of Mark. It's just a strange verse, for everyone will be salted with fire. This past week, as I was studying, I found some 15 different interpretations just on that verse alone. But when taken into context, and when considered in light of what Mark is trying to do in this section of the book, I believe the best interpretation is this, that when Jesus talks about being salted with fire, he's talking about the fiery trials and persecutions that his followers will experience as they offer their lives to him in this present life. Are are you tracking here with me? Um, I'll try to break it down further if that doesn't make sense. Jesus is basically saying here, when we do what Paul says to do in Romans 12, and we offer our bodies or our lives to God as a living sacrifice, God, I'm not going to be conformed to the outside world around me, uh, but my entire life is in your hands. I'm holding nothing back. Whatever you want, that's what I want. Uh, My whole desire is that your will be carried out in and through my life. Jesus is teaching here that when we offer ourselves to God in that way, that look, at times, the heat's going to turn up. Are you tracking? You lay your life down as a sacrifice before God. There are times where you are going to feel the fire of the world around you. And the reason for that's really simple. And you know it, so I'm not saying anything new. But the reality is that kind of unwavering and uncompromising devotion to God isn't always popular in the world we live in today, is it? The more popular thing to trust and know is this, or I shouldn't say popular, the more important thing to know uh, and trust is this, 
that as you persevere through those fires, Jesus promises you, if you'll keep trusting him and depending upon him, he promises to preserve you through them. How beautiful is that? Look, you just walk with me. I'm not going to like hang out on the other side of the fire and wait on you. I'm going to immerse myself in the fire with you and I'll walk you through it. I'll preserve you every step of the way. At the same time, the Holy Spirit of God that lives in you promises to use those fires to purify you in order to make you more and more like Jesus. And so here would be my encouragement to you. Don't miss this. When your devotion to Jesus makes life harder than it's ever been, like when you're taking shots and losing friends and people are saying awful things about you and your business is losing money because, you know, you got that little Christian fish on your work truck or on your work van. Like when all that stuff's happening, here's what you do. You keep persevering. You press on, you endure, you lock your sights on Jesus, and you start going harder after him than you've ever gone after him before. And you trust along the way that in the end it will all be worth it. Because God's promise to you is this. You persevere through it with my help. In the end, you'll become more and more like the one who persevered through the fire of suffering and death for you. So that's first. Next is salt. Uh, Salt, any salt fans in the room? I actually got an amen at the 10 o'clock gathering when I brought up salt. It's awesome. I give my wife a hard time all the time. She's that girl who like salts everything before she tastes it. And I'm like, come on, slow down. But uh, salt fans, you might understand this, okay, better than the rest of us. In the ancient world, salt was considered more critical to life than we probably consider it today. You know, today you go to the doctor and they tell you not to eat so much of it. Uh, Back then, Jewish rabbis taught that it was actually a necessity of life. You could not live without it. And so in the passage, when Jesus brings up the idea of salt, he's bringing up the idea of preservation. You see, in the ancient world, salt was used not just for flavoring and for cleaning, but to preserve foods so that they would be kept from spoiling. And so when he says to his disciples here, hey, guys, uh, don't lose your saltiness. Have salt in yourselves. What he's getting at is this. He's saying to them, listen, hold on tightly. With every ounce of energy that's within you, hold on tightly to those characteristics that I've placed in you that are meant to bring life into this world, thereby preventing its decay. Listen, if that's confusing, I'll try to simplify it further. And this is where it gets really practical for us, all right? Listen, I need you to know if you follow Jesus... Your life is meant to light up the darkness that exists in this world due to sin. You get that? Like everywhere you go, your life is meant to be like a candle or a flashlight entering a dark room. Things start to look different because you're there. In the same way, your life is also meant to preserve the world from decay and destruction brought on by sin. Because that's what sin does, right? It destroys things. It causes things to perish and decay. So when you show up in certain places or in people's lives, in a way, your life is supposed to, is meant to at least, put a halt to that. I would also add that your life as a follower of Jesus should make other people thirst for Jesus in a way. Salt makes people thirst, right? Your life is meant to uh, create this thirst in other people to know the God and Savior you know. And so all Jesus is saying here is this. It's really simple. He's going, hey, Don't lose those aspects of your life that are meant to serve those purposes. Don't let go of them. Instead, remain devoted to me. Walk in obedience to me. Keep depending entirely upon me. 
Practice self-sacrifice. Serve other people before you ever serve yourself. And he even says in our passage, listen, live at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. Why? Because when we as his followers are at peace with one another, our relational peace has this way of reflecting the very peace of God to a broken world in disarray. And so as we close, I just want to ask the all-important question. You ready? How are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? Has your life lost its saltiness or is there salt still within you? Like is your, is your life, don't miss it, is your life helping to preserve the world all for the glory of God and the good of other people? Or is your life in some way contributing to the world's destruction and decline? If you're having a hard time answering that, just think back to what we've covered today. Are you for those for Jesus? Are you someone who's striving each day to kill sin long before it kills you? Uh, are you offering your life to God each day as a sacrifice? Just laying yourself before him. God, my life is not my own. I realize it has been purchased with the very blood of Jesus Christ. And so, God, here I am again on Tuesday, just giving my life back to you. Is that you? Are, are you completely devoted to him and to other people? Here's the really good news. If you hear those questions and you go, I'm getting a lot of that wrong, James. Ugh. Like all this following Jesus stuff, man, I feel like I'm blowing it. Here's the great news. God still has grace for you if that's you. Isn't that amazing? He loves you more than you could ever comprehend. And his desire is to keep working in your life and to change you so that he can help you get those things right. I find it amazing that we have such a gracious God that he calls us to a life that is absolutely impossible for us to live in our flesh, but he doesn't then walk away and say, good luck, hope you get it right. Now he calls us to this impossible life, and then he puts his own spirit, the Holy Spirit, inside of our bodies, and he says, look, if you just walk with him each day, you'll get it all right. If you depend on his strength each day, you will knock this stuff out of the park. And so what we're going to do right now as broken, fleshly people who probably need the Lord's help, right, is we're just going to ask him for help where we need it. We're going to pray, and we're going to respond, and we're going to ask God right now to do a work in us that only he can do so that we can follow Jesus. So will you pray with me? Let's just bow our heads all across the room. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come forward as well and to get in their places. And as they come, I want to talk to those of you who showed up today without a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're that person who walked in and sin is killing you. There are aspects of your life that you have tried to change, uh, tried to fix, but nothing's worked. You're still the same person you've always been. Maybe in some ways your problems have gotten worse. But if you're that person who showed up today and God has used our time together to reveal to you that you need Jesus, that only Jesus can change you, only he can save you from you, only he can fix those broken places in your life, only he can give you eternal life in heaven with him. If that's you, why don't you just tell Jesus that in faith right now? Just pray right where you're sitting and, and just say, Jesus, I need you to save me. 
I need you to save me from hell. I need you to save me from sin. I need you to save me from myself. So Jesus, I put my faith in you. I trust in your death on the cross for my sins. I trust in your resurrection from the dead so that I could have new and eternal life. And Jesus, I'm asking you right now, take hold of my life. Forgive me of all my sins, past, present, and future. Put your Holy Spirit in me and make me into the person you've created me to be. Jesus, I say yes to a relationship with you. Look, if you just pray that with heads bowed and eyes still closed, if you just prayed that or something like that with me, I want to ask you to do me a simple favor. I want to ask you if you'd right now in this moment just acknowledge the fact that you made that decision by lifting a hand. Just wherever you are, just throw it up real high. James, I put my faith in Jesus today. I see hands going up. Just keep them up for a moment. Our prayer team is going to come and put a resource in your hand. And as soon as you receive it, you can put your hand back down. Several hands around the room. Anybody else, just throw it up real high. James, it's me. Put my faith in Jesus today for the first time. Trusted him as my loving Savior and Lord. Awesome. Awesome. What I want to do right now is just pray for us. And then we're going to take some time to just respond, set our minds on Jesus, think about the grace of God, and continue asking him to help us where we need it. Father, in the next few moments, would you pour out your presence in this place in undeniable ways? God, would you let your Holy Spirit go to work in us, changing us more and more into the likeness of your son, Jesus? God, we just want to say today, we need you. And God, we're so grateful that you give yourself so freely to us in grace and love toward us as broken, sinful people. So God, have your way in this time. It's yours. We pray it in Jesus' name.